Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is March the 2nd, 2022, and it is National Read Across America Day. Why? Because today is Dr. Seuss's birthday. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am the Networking Nerd, a word that was coined by our friend Mr. Seuss. And I am joined by a connoisseur of all things, Dr. Seuss, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Well, it's wonderful to be here uh, today. Dr. Seuss is is Seussier than Seuss, but I want to give a little shout out. My favorite Dr. Seuss book is I Had Trouble in Getting to Sala Salu. So oh, check that, is... that one out. It's a little bit obscure, but I think you'll like it. That is one that doesn't typically pop up on my radar, so I know what I'm going to be doing after we finish running down the news of the week. Um, we have some interesting stories coming up, some news around chips, some news around security, um, and possibly a, a very big hack. So we will actually get it kicked off. Um, it's new processor day. That's right. Intel is finally releasing the latest update in their Xeon D line of processors. The code name for this one is very frosty, Ice Lake. The refresh has lots of goodies uh, for the chip fans in the audience, including our friend here, Stephen, including support for PCI Gen 4, 100 gigabit per second networking, uh, which is going to be really kind of shown off in the 25 gigabit per second interface uh, line. And then there's lots of options for accelerator cards in these. Uh, the newest D-Line processors include some new core architecture, which is something that fans have been waiting for for the last three years, as well as some optimizations for memory and I.O., because we're starting to see applications that are really hungry for those. Stephen, as a fan of all things exciting and new in the world of chips, what's got you excited for the Ice Lake D? Well, let me just say here, uh, if you if you don't know what the Xeon D line is all about, and a lot of people, frankly, don't. I mean, but it, this is basically the um, the specialist processor for embedded use. So the Xeon D, basically, if you open up uh, a, a modern, advanced uh, Intel-powered router or storage array or pretty much any kind of um, advanced, high-powered embedded device, I mean, low-powered ones are mostly using Atom, but most of the higher powered ones use Xeon D. This is not the chip that you're going to find in a desktop or a laptop. That's not what this thing is for. Uh, and this line has been tremendously successful, especially in storage, because the Xeon D has always been a monster in terms of I.O. and the sort of processing that storage needs. But it hadn't been updated in quite a while. And so it's great to have an Ice Lake generation version of Xeon D. As Tom mentioned, this includes uh, PCIe Gen 4. It includes the potential for more memory channels, which is, uh, again, really a, a big accelerator. Um, it includes new instructions from the Ice Lake generation, include, in, including uh, machine learning uh, processing. And um, most importantly, and I'm surprised that the networking nerd missed this one, it includes the uh, Intel Ethernet 800 uh, intellectual property, which gives it some serious network offload potential. So in summary, the Xeon D is kind of awesome. It has always been kind of awesome for this kind of use case. Like I said, you know, switches and servers and storage and stuff, not, you know, uh, special purpose servers. And um, I'm really, really glad to see it here. Uh, we got some great uh, coverage over from uh, Serve the Home. Love you, Patrick. And um, got the uh, a real uh, eye opener into, into everything about this platform. 
and uh, it looks pretty solid. And I'm really uh, excited to say that we're very likely to see basically a, a, an iteration of pretty much every one of those enterprise devices in the next year, because suddenly they've got a lot more power uh, to use. So Tom, if you found yourself wondering if an email in your inbox is a phishing attempt, well, Cloudflare is looking to help you. Uh, they just caught anti-phishing firm Area One in their acquisition net. Area One helps proactively identify phishing campaigns and ensure that emails are never even deliver delivered to your inbox. This acquisition comes after Cloudflare had been offering their own advanced email security suite since last year, as well as being a customer of Area One. The deal is valued at $162 million, with half of that purchase amount being Cloudflare stock. Tom, is this going to help Cloudflare's efforts to branch out into more services? I think it's going to have a big impact on this. And uh, there's an anecdote in the story that we linked to that's kind of funny. Um, I think Cloudflare decided to pick this up when the CEO of Cloudflare actually had to call Area One and go, are you filtering our emails? Are you screwing things up? Because we haven't had any kind of phishing reports in the last like two months. And that's not normal. Like we get them all the time. And the Area One guy was like, uh, it's because we caught them all. And like they they legitimately thought they had a, an email problem. And no, it turns out that Area One is so good at identifying these threats before they're even delivered that it cuts down on the mail flow volume. And if you know anything about Cloudflare's business, I think you just figured out why this is kind of an important catch for them. So with Cloudflare essentially kind of acting as a giant internet proxy layer, you launch traffic into Cloudflare, and what you want to come out on the other side is legitimate, useful stuff, right? So what would happen if a whole bunch of people were using Cloudflare effectively as the transport layer for their mail services, and suddenly all of the phishing emails just happen to fall out to the bottom of the Cloudflare lake? That is a huge value add, because when you think about it, if I sign up for Cloudflare's anti-email phishing services or their, their whole email security suite, what if one of the selling points was we can actually reduce the message volume coming into your servers because we're not going to deliver it if it's not legitimate, if it's, if it's a security threat? I would actually sign up for that in a heartbeat. I get enough phishing emails in a, in a given period of time that, it, that even just processing them takes more effort than I'm willing to give. So if they just don't show up, that's great. Um, you can usually tell in these acquisitions when the company is really sold on the technology and they're not just buying it as a defensive add-on for, for something else, simply because they're like, listen, we used it, we loved it, here's some money, please, please come to our team. So I think that this is gonna be a super valuable thing and I'm hoping that by giving customers something in the realm of this internet security email anti-phishing stuff that it positions uh, Cloudflare as a larger security kind of player, but from a different perspective. Instead of it being purely defensive on the side of the enterprise, that this becomes kind of a middleman washing all of the bad traffic out that actually kind of helps alleviate a lot of the traffic problems that we're seeing. And, you know, who knows? I think this should be a pretty successful thing for the Cloudflare team. Stephen, Robin.io is in the news this week because they are soaring into a new home after they were acquired this week by, let me see if I get this name right, Rakuten Symphony. That's right. It's not Rakuten or Rakuten. It's Rakuten. The Kubernetes storage startup was picked up by the Japanese version of Amazon for an undisclosed amount. 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Rakuten is like the company where I buy all of the stuff like online. What is Rakuten Symphony? Well, that's the name of their mobile division, which they spun out uh, last August. And it's really focused on 4G and 5G technology development. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why does Rakuten Symphony need Robin.io? Well, <laughs> you know, Robin.io is a Kubernetes startup, but they focus on 5G edge nodes and management of those nodes. And if you know anything about the 5G space, getting edge computing nodes out as far as you can to help deliver things like applications and, and so forth is a huge uh, land rush right now of investments. And I think that this is going to be a very good pickup for Rakuten. Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, I think that this is actually a very, very good pickup for uh, Rakuten Symphony. And I think that uh, it looks like it's probably a decent exit for Ra uh, Robin as well. Uh, so back in 2017, when they were a new company, uh, we got to hear from Robin at our Tech Field Day event. And uh, we came away very impressed with the technology. But of course, since then, technology has shifted and changed. And we've seen the emergence of uh, 5G and Edge and containerization and Kubernetes as major trends. Uh, Robin was already on that train, but since then they've really aggressively adapted to the point where I was starting to hear Robin's name mentioned by many of the folks in the enterprise uh, Kubernetes space as a major under the radar player. So it comes as no surprise that they would be acquired. And I suspect, as uh, Blocks and Files suggests, that this was probably a pretty good exit. This was probably not a fire sale because, uh, frankly, they were doing well. They were getting a lot more buzz. And, and, and to be honest with you, one of the things that I loved about Robin was that they were doing the work to make the thing actually be useful and functional and, 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 and to work. And that has really, really helped. Uh, you know, they have a, a cloud native platform for storage, uh, for integration with Kubernetes and uh, automation of all of the activities that are involved with uh, basically bringing uh, stateful storage into stateless Kubernetes cloud applications. Now, Rakuten Symphony is an interesting story as well because yeah, we know Rakuten, and uh, just like Amazon here in the U.S., Rakuten has a major uh, initiative that isn't involved in e-commerce. And Rakuten Symphony especially is a really cool angle. It, it's basically a company focused on delivering sort of uh, next-generation hyperscale at the edge for 5G applications. Now, maybe if you've been a fan of the rundown, you've heard me talk about how 5G isn't what people think it is. It's not about fast telecom. It's about moving compute to the edge. And Kubernetes is deeply involved in that. And of course, any applications there are going to need stateful storage. And uh, I have a suspicion that Rakuten Symphony was using an awful lot of Robin technology and finally said, you know, why don't we just buy this thing instead of continually buying from this thing? Made them an offer they couldn't refuse. And that's that. So the good news is that it was probably a good exit. Uh, it gives Rakuten Symphony a very good uh, Kubernetes-enabled uh, storage and automation platform. The bad news is that we don't get Robin in the in the industry anymore. I doubt that they're going to continue this as a product. I imagine that it's going to be integrated with uh, Rakuten's offerings, and that's going to be that. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe we'll still see them maintain uh, Robin as a product, but I suspect that this is uh, going to just be another uh, part of the Rakuten Symphony offering. 
And if you want to learn a little bit more about our thoughts on 5G and Edge, make sure that you head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video and look for the special crossover checksum conversations episode that we did last year. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes because I think you'll really enjoy kind of our perspective on what 5G really is. Um, hint, it's not watching cat videos faster. Thanks, Tom. So uh, Rubrik is so confident in their Cloud Vault software and the capabilities uh, for it to save you from ransomware outbreaks that they will warranty those ar archives for up to $5 million if something can't be recovered. Cloud Vault is built into Azure's archival SaaS service, and the new dollar amount augments the existing ransomware recovery warranty that they announced last year. Microsoft has invested in Rubrik and helped develop the Zero Trust anti-ransomware services as well. Tom, is this a good way to show companies the value of cloud-based ransomware recovery? You know, it's always comforting to me when a company is willing to put up their own money to actually prove that their stuff works. Um, now, obviously, you're going to have to read the terms and conditions on it really closely because I'm sure there's some outs for things like misconfigured systems and stuff like that. But ultimately, I like this idea of, hey, we'll warranty your data because as I've said on a number of occasions, security is a risk trade-off. You're, you're analyzing what you're doing and you're basically just picking the least risky option for this to happen. And I know that I have had some very mm, public disagreements with Mr. Curtis Preston, Mr. Backup, on uh, this idea that backup companies are starting to kind of move into the security realm through data protection and things like that. And that's a story for a completely different time. But I think that this way of showing that you're willing to kind of essentially put your money where your mouth is, is really important. But the other interesting thing out of the story that really kind of caught my eye is that Microsoft had made this investment in Rubrik. And they had said, we're going to help you kind of develop these abilities for you to offer these essentially zero trust anti-malware protections. And the zero trust aspect is super important when you know how malware and ransomware spreads across the organization. If you can isolate these nodes and keep them from attacking other nodes, it actually makes the backup system a whole lot easier to execute because you're only restoring a few systems as opposed to what happened to Maersk, where they effectively had to completely redo their entire network. But more importantly, this poses a much bigger question to me. How long is it going to be before cyber insurance companies are going to start requiring these most basic of protections. Because one of the things that we're starting to see that is um, something that came out this week with uh, some leaks from the Conti Malware Group is that they're actually going after companies that have cyber insurance because they know they're gonna get paid because that's the purpose of an insurance company. So I would not be shocked by the end of this year if some of these major cyber insurance firms, if they're still offering cyber insurance at that point say, okay, cool, we will totally insure your, your information, but you have to use one of these preferred providers that have these guarantees and these warranties. So in the event that something happens, you get paid instead of us having to pay out, or we have verified that they are like the baseline minimum level. I think that that's a perfectly reasonable tack to take because it gives the insurance companies cover in the event that something goes wrong, but it also ensures that the companies that are developing the technology have a vested interest in making sure that it actually works. All right, Stephen, we got one more short story here um, because it's uh, trial time for a Chinese chip maker accused of stealing some intellectual property. Uh, Fujian Yinhua Integrated Circuit Company is accused of stealing trade secrets from Micron Technologies. 
The theft occurred three years ago, and it led to the company being sanctioned by the U.S. government by being placed on their so-called entity list, which effectively restricts trade with that company. The technology at the heart of this case is dynamic RAM chips. Now, if you know anything about the chip market right now, if you think CPUs are hard to find, RAM is even harder to get a hold of. And there was talk about how this uh, technology that was being developed by the chip maker was going to allow China to uh, effectively kind of consume its own RAM. And that is where all the investigations started. Stephen, this is a very complex case because there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. How does this look for Fujian Yenhua in court as far as being able to win it? Well, I'm not a legal expert, and I am actually not aware of the details of this case, so I'm not going to guess how it's going to come out. But we do actually have a clue how it's going to come out, and that is because there was another entity involved in this case as well. United Microelectronics Corp. uh, of Taiwan was also accused at the same time in the the same related offense. Essentially, there was a a Taiwanese-American scientist that was involved who uh, was alleged to have taken not just um, you know rough details, but very specific designs of Micron's technology to UMC and Jinhua. And uh, UMC uh, pleaded guilty to a lesser charge and paid a fine. So that suggests that there was enough evidence, at least against them, that they didn't want to take it to court. Uh, Xinhua is uh, now, you know, uh, taking this to court in the United States, in San Francisco. And uh, as you mentioned, they've actually been on the uh, bad boy list for three years now. They've been unable to complete their fab. They've been unable to get into production. And they were very close as well. And they've been unable, most importantly, to get access to the latest EUV chip making technology because of this uh, sanction against them. Essentially, they will argue, I'm sure, that, that this uh, theft did not occur. Uh, maybe they'll plead to a lesser charge like UMC did. But frankly, I think that this has uh, really damaged and dented their ability to compete because the technology at issue now is a few years old. Uh, we've now moved forward. Uh, we're in the DDR5 era now. And uh, I'm not sure that if even if they are completely 100% exonerated, removed from all the lists, allowed to do whatever they want to do, I'm not sure they'll be able to get equipment right now. I'm not sure they'll be able to get everything up and running. And even if they are, I'm not sure that what they produce will be all that valuable. So uh, quite frankly, I feel that uh, Xinhua has already lost this case, even if they win. So Tom, now it's time to turn to some of the more detailed stories this week and maybe have a little discussion on uh, the bigger news. So the first story here involves a very familiar name in a somewhat unfamiliar situation. NVIDIA just can't seem to catch a break. This time, the company says that they've been hacked after investigating an incident last week. The proof came when a group known as Lapsus Dollar Sign started stealing uh, and leaking employee credentials and other sensitive data publicly to prove that they intruded on NVIDIA's networks. They claim to have about a terabyte of data from NVIDIA, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it includes a folder with 250 gigs of data on GPU designs and architecture, which is a lot. Uh, The attackers are demanding that NVIDIA remove restrictions placed on their GPUs that make them less appealing to crypto mining and uh, also to make the company to commit to publicly open source GPU driver instead of uh, the binary kernel module that's currently used. Uh, Tom, what's going on here? 
So the timing of this attack was actually extremely unfortunate because it happened last week when there was a lot of other geopolitical news going on. So first, the attribution was that it was state-sponsored terrorism, which is absolutely incorrect. We know for a fact now that that was not the case. Effectively, what happened is this group, Lapsus Ching, I guess, maybe we'll do that. Um, they hacked in, they stole a whole bunch of data. It's par for the course, right? But in order to prove it, they had to leak some of that data. And so that's when we first started seeing that come out late last week. But more importantly, and this is kind of a, a big deal, they are effectively holding the keys to NVIDIA's kingdom right now. Not because it's going to be useful in any way that you think about it. So effectively what they've done is they have all the architecture designs for all of NVIDIA's GPUs, including the ones that haven't been released yet. So they are effectively holding in NVIDIA's intellectual property for ho hostage. Here's the problem, though. The demands are really weird. Like, they don't want to get paid. They are, they are effectively almost like, I don't know, activists. Like, you know, you need to take out all of this stuff that you put in here that makes these GPUs less appealing to Bitcoin miners. Well, the reason why NVIDIA put that stuff in there was because the only people buying their GPUs was Bitcoin miners. And yeah, they were buying them at a hugely inflated, inflated price because they kept driving that price up. But do you know what happens when all of that stuff gets released and the crypto miners buy like 20 of them? The customers that are the backbone of your actual product lines get really mad at you and make you fix things. And so that's what they're doing. They're responding to customer demand. Okay, that's cut and dried and, and that's no big deal. Here's the other thing. And this is the part that really kind of gets me a little bit. They want NVIDIA to release a 100% completely free open source driver for their cards. Okay, that's hard because there's intellectual property in the cards and there's function calls that are not publicly available, stuff like that. That's why I think the threat to leak the architecture documents is on the table. What the group is thinking, hey, if we leak this, the open source community will be able to write its own free driver because they'll know everything that's going on inside of the cards. That's not going to happen, guys. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a fun thing that happened a couple of years ago. A whole bunch of internal Nintendo development documents leaked. The source code for a lot of their early games, a lot of the ways that they do emulation. And the very first thing that happened is a lot of the community uh, source, uh, open source emulators immediately put out a statement saying, under no circumstances should you do anything with this information, and you absolutely should not include any of it in our development process. Because here's the deal. If you develop an NVIDIA driver that calls proprietary functions and provide it freely available as an open source project, which means you can audit the code, NVIDIA can audit the code. They can see this. They know where you got it from, and they can shut the project down. And anybody that integrates these function calls into existing software or drivers is going to get shut down too. So I feel like this is embarrassing for NVIDIA, but this is not something that can actually be carried out. Like if, if they threaten to lock up your entire file structure and you have to pay them 10 Bitcoin to get it back, that's a legitimate threat. Threatening to release the architecture in exchange for a free and open source driver I don't think that that is something that they're going to be able to carry through on. And there were even reports that NVIDIA had tried to hack Lapsus Ching back by dropping, you know, 
programs on their computers and trying to steal their identities and stuff like that. But those have not been substantiated. Um, NVIDIA is not commenting. The only report that we have is their their hacking team is like, hey, look what NVIDIA tried to do to us. But that could also just as easily be kind of a way to keep themselves in the news. I honestly don't think that Lapsus Ching is going to release this information. I think that this is just kind of a blustery kind of activist thing, and it's going to blow up in their faces. Stephen, I mean, what do you think about it? You know, I have maybe a different take on this. I mean, for one, it is important, as you mentioned, that this is a very different story than we're used to with uh, a lot of the ransomware uh, stories that we hear and, you know, hack uh, corporate data. Uh, It does seem like this is almost open source activism based on based solely on their demands. Now, let me just say that this is not a good kind of open source activism. Let's not do this, folks. Uh, But at the same time, uh, if we're going to try to figure out what's going to happen here, I think that maybe that can help inform uh, where this is going. And and to be honest with you, to me, I suspect that they will release the information. In fact, I suspect that this is going to go precisely nowhere. I think that NVIDIA is going to ignore it, uh, move on, not pay, not do whatever they want to do. And I think that this group, which, again, based on their demands, sounds like a group of uh, activists more than anything, and, and probably crypto enthusiasts. I should mention as well that the NVIDIA GPUs are mostly used mining Ethereum, uh, not Bitcoin, and other uh, smaller cryptocurrencies. And uh, NVIDIA has moved aggressively to try to keep those people from doing that by changing the underlying architecture of the GPUs themselves, making them less appealing to miners so that they can, as you say, be used for uh, gamers, uh, for AI, that sort of thing. And um, I think that what's going to happen is that these activists, whether they're crypto enthusiasts or open source enthusiasts, are probably going to release the information. And that's probably going to result in the creation of some open source drivers that get around some of NVIDIA's restrictions on these cards and allow people to use their card however they want. And I think that that's probably going to affect the current generation of NVIDIA cards. It's probably going to mean that there's going to be a bunch more use of it. But uh, frankly, it's probably not going to have a long-term effect because Ethereum is moving to a proof of stake instead of a proof of work model, eventually, maybe. And when it does, then uh, these cards won't be nearly as valuable anymore because, quite frankly, all the smaller crypto coins that use uh, GPU-based mining aren't really worth the power uh, at this point and might not be worth the power in the future. So, okay, uh, NVIDIA probably lost this one. Uh, They'll probably see a bunch more people buying their uh, supposedly limited cards and using them in an unlimited fashion, using an unauthorized driver developed from this information. And that won't matter in another few years. Speaking of cryptocurrency, Stephen, though, we've got another story we wanted to bring up here. Now, Obviously, world news is very busy this week with stories focusing on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the biggest news items is the fact that many of the countries in the Western world are using economic sanctions in order to show their distaste for the military moves that are being made. Um, Investments are being frozen. The country has been disconnected from the SWIFT payment system. It really does seem like the rest of the world is trying to isolate the Russian economy. However, there was a story that came out in the New York Times that's focusing on uh, something, honestly, that I wouldn't have even expected we would have talked about 10 years ago. And that's the fact that you are thinking about possibly using cryptocurrency 
to avoid the harshest penalties. Reports are saying that there is the possibility that the Russian central bank could issue a, their own currency, which they're calling a digital ruble, that would allow them to trade with other countries without the need to exchange the currency into a different form for the trade, which is one of the things that's being blocked by the sanctions. Also noted in the story is the fact that there seems to be a high number of hacking crews that are associated or located in and around Russia that have the capability of stealing digital cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin and using those to trade around said sanctions. Stephen, as we mentioned, this is a very interesting point. Can you use cryptocurrencies to stymie the way that sanctions are being used in the tr traditional historical sense? Well, this is a really interesting question. And the technical answer is sort of yes, but this, I I'm going to go on record now, this is not going to happen. And here's why. So the problem with this line of thinking and the problem with what the New York Times is suggesting is that basically the crypto market can't handle this kind of use case. Let me explain. The Russian economy that has been falling, the amount of money that we're talking about is unbelievably large. I mean, remember that Russia is a huge, huge country with a massive economy. Uh, compare this, for example, with North Korea, which has absolutely 100% been using cryptocurrency transactions to get around sanctions and has been using uh, criminal gangs to steal crypto as a way to raise foreign currency uh, to advance the needs of the government. North Korea is a tiny, tiny economy. Essentially, the problem with this whole line of thinking is that if Russia were to use, for example, Bitcoin transactions to get around the sanctions, well, there's not enough Bitcoin out there to make this happen. Yes, it's a big market. Yes, there's a lot of Bitcoin, but there's not that much. It's just not that big. Russia would need literally hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions, and that's not something that Bitcoin can sustain. Now, if they tried it, uh, that would be really interesting because Bitcoin probably would go, as the crypto bros say, to the moon. But I don't think that they're going to do it because I just don't think that it can happen. There's another problem, though, and the second reason that this can't happen is because basically Russia has totally dropped the ball on crypto again and again and again. This is a country that has been trying to outlaw it as a way to keep uh, basically their own oligarchs from getting around tax policy using Bitcoin and other, other cryptocurrencies. Uh, it's a country that has kind of had an on-again, off-again relationship with mining. Now, there is some Bitcoin mining going on in Russia. Absolutely. There's a, a, a high-profile photo of a giant Bitcoin mine. And I'm sure that that's a wonderful source of a very small amount of money for this uh, government at this point. But it really isn't enough. And it's not clear that, uh, that Russia is really ready to do this. And to be honest with you, it's not clear that uh, Vladimir Putin himself is tech savvy enough to really see the potential here to make this happen. Now, there's a third reason that I don't think this is going to happen, and I think this is probably the most important. And that is, as everyone discovered at the end of 2021, everyone who dabbled in cryptocurrency at least, is that this stuff isn't transparent. This stuff isn't hidden from the government. It's not a libertarian ideal. Basically, your crypto transactions are not any different than bartering for gold or uh, trading dollars or uh, rubles. 
it's all legal transactions. And it's not legal to break sanctions, even if the currency happens to be Bitcoin or Monero or Ethereum or any of these other cryptocurrencies, you're still breaking sanctions. And it would be very, very difficult to convince somebody who's not willing to trade in dollars that they can trade in Bitcoin or whatever. And that's okay because you know what? As we've seen with uh, some of the recent stories around the uh, federal government uh, seizing Bitcoin that was ill-gotten recently, and uh, some of these other transactions where they were able to even penetrate the anonymity of Monero, uh, if somebody tried to do this, to use Bitcoin to break the international sanctions regime, they would be found very quickly. They would be identified, they would be tracked, and they would be in big trouble unless they don't care about international sanctions, in which case they're going to find some other way to do it. I just don't see this happening. Yeah, that is exactly the tack that I was going to take with this story, Stephen. One, Bitcoin is not anonymous. Let's just get that out of the way. Every blockchain has a record of every transaction that's ever happened. That's literally the purpose of a blockchain. Now, there may be obfuscation on the blockchain. And that's in the New York Times story. They talked about the fact that there are people who are doing research in Russia to kind of obfuscate the way that these transactions happen. Okay. I have, um, I have encryption algorithms that obfuscate my email. And I've had them for years. You know, ones like DES and triple DES that are basically broken now. You know why? Because when you throw enough compute power at a problem, it's solvable. Maybe it takes a, a slightly longer timeline, but here's the thing. And this is the, the part that nobody's talking about. And this is actually one of the problems that I have with a lot of the hype around these crypto coins. If you live in a purely digital world, they make sense. Last time I checked, I don't live in the matrix and neither do you. We don't live in a purely digital world. We live in a world of people. So here's what's going to happen. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, the Russians do decide that they're going to use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. If they can find anybody that even wants to buy this stuff. The last time I checked, you can't buy a missile with Bitcoin. You have to exchange it for something, right? And I don't know of a government that can do that exchange. So you're going to have an exchange, right? Okay, all well and good. Do you think that exchange is going to escape the scrutiny of many of the governments in the West, if they start suddenly exchanging Bitcoins for artillery or logistics supplies or things like that. Remember how I said we live in a world full of people? People can be put in jail. People can be arrested and pressured to flip. People can be threatened with sanctions and or life loss of liberty and money to flip and suddenly start doing things they're not supposed to, like maybe putting all that Bitcoin in a wallet that can be easily invaded by Western intelligence agencies. I'll tell you this right now. A yacht full of gold bars is much better than trying to do this with cryptocurrency because there will be a record forever of what happened here. And given the outcry that we've seen around the world, do you want to be found out as the country that decided to break those sanctions and sell things to somebody that they shouldn't? Our history over the last 40 years is littered with countries and entities that broke sanctions and they became pariahs. They became 
buzzwords that we use to describe the nefarious ways that people will try to cheat the system. And Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies with blockchains are the effectively the uncheatable system. Someone will find out. And I think that that is motivation enough, as you said, for people to not want to get embroiled in this. And I know that based on news reports that we're seeing that a lot of the cryptocurrency exchanges are refusing to freeze out asset transfers uh, with, with people located in sanctioned countries. I would not be surprised if we don't see that decision getting revisited over the course of the next couple of years, along with some um, discouraging new laws being put into place to prevent kind of things like this from happening in the future. Um, I don't think this is the way to evade traditional sanctions, and I don't think it's going to be something that anybody wants to get involved in anytime soon. I do have a couple more points that I'd like to make quickly here. One of the things I mentioned was that the Bitcoin, uh, the volume of Bitcoin is not big enough to sustain uh, evading international sanctions. Now, I want to make sure that it's clear. I don't mean the market cap of Bitcoin, which actually, no joke, just as they say, flippened the Russian ruble. In other words, there are there is more money, more value in the entire Bitcoin economy than in the entire Russian economy which means that absolutely there is a lot of money tied up in here. What I mean is the volume. What I mean is the capability of Bitcoin to transact that kind of money in a way that would work because there just aren't that many uh, endpoints. There's not that much volume, not that much trades that could, could absorb enough money to keep the Russian economy going. But the other thing I want to point out is that there's actually some interesting, uh, potentially positive use of cryptocurrency here, and that is among normal, everyday people. Uh, we're already seeing a great uh, spike in the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because I suspect people in Russia are trading in as much rubles as they can on crypto is a hedge against inflation. And I suspect that there's probably a lot of volume happening as well with people in the Ukraine doing the same and with people transacting crypto to their friends and family in these places as a way to help sustain them during uh, the time of war. And frankly, as I said, that's a pretty positive development that we can have a uh, global uh, store of value and a way to exchange money with people in need, uh, people in desperate circumstances that could theoretically continue to support them regardless of what happens to their local economy. So I do see a lot of potential here uh, for Bitcoin and Ethereum and others to be a uh, positive force in a war zone like Ukraine or in a uh, crippled economy like in Russia for average people, which makes me much happier with this story than it was when I first read that New York Times headline. Yeah, we, we want to find the silver lining in all of these things. And that's one of the reasons why we bring you the news each week here on The Rundown is to kind of give you some perspectives and, and maybe a little bit of hope that uh, with all of the spate of attacks, uh, both cyber and, and otherwise, and, and all the other things going on, that, that technology is going to keep on pushing along and making lives better for the, the common average person out there. Um, we do have a couple of things coming up in the weeks ahead that we wanted to let you know about. Stephen, what's the first thing we've got coming up on our list that people should be checking out? Well, I'm pretty excited because next week, in addition to being my birthday, is uh, Storage Field Day. Uh, so Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday next week, we're going to be hearing from Fungible, uh, Racktop, Hammerspace, Sios, Vast Data, MinIO, Intel and pure storage. So tune in at techfieldday.com for storage field day, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time all next week. 
and we've got more exciting events coming up on my side of the house. We've got a special exclusive event with our friends at Cisco that will be taking place March 16th and 17th. Make sure you check out the website for more details on that coming very soon. And then we also have Security Field Day coming up March 23rd through the 25th, featuring a, a number of companies who are involved in the cybersecurity space, including Rubrik, who we mentioned earlier in this uh, episode. So you'll definitely want to check that out for more information about when they'll pre be presenting times and all of that. Make sure that you stay tuned for that, including um, we'll go to the website and check the top of the screen. There's a little yellow bar that you can sign up for our mailing list. And when we announce new events, when we have exciting new things coming up, that's the easiest way to get in touch with the Tech Field Day community and stay on top of all of the things that are current. You can also stay on top of the current news by checking out the Gestalt IT Rundown every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. We will be uploading this video to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video, where you're probably watching it now, but you can also check out a podcast version of the news if you subscribe to the Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Gestalt IT. And if you use the hashtag rundown, if you would like to let us know about a story coming up or something that you thought was very interesting, we might even cover it here. Uh, for Stephen Foskett and for the rest of our community that is composed of the most wonderful and amazing nerds and Snorlaxes and Wuzzles out there, um, thank you very much for tuning in. We hope that you have a great day and we look forward to seeing you again next week.